Welcome to The Conversation, a podcast about educational technology, the learning sciences, and instructional design. This week, we're talking about universal design and my love-hate relationship with it. But before we get to that, I would like to welcome my two guests, Kelly and Candice. Welcome, and please tell us a bit about yourselves. Well, I'm Kelly. I'm studying to be a middle school biology teacher. I currently substitute, and I love it. I have a lot of fun. I was born in Flushing, Queens, and I moved out to Long Island as a teenager. And yeah. Welcome, Kelly. Nice to talk to you. What about you, Candice? This is my third master's degree. I teach seventh and eighth grade orchestra. I originally graduated from Hofstra University for undergrad and, and master's. And I just recently graduated from SUNY Old Westbury with a uh, master's in liberal arts. I've been on Long Island my whole life. Um, and just a little bonus conversation, I have two daughters and a husband who also teaches music on Long Island. Nice to meet you, Candice. Welcome. So as I said earlier, our topic this week is on universal design. And I thought we could start with a question that Marina wanted us to address, which was, what is the difference between differentiated instruction and universal design or UDL? So I think that's a great question. So why don't we start with that first? So they are pretty similar. So I would say that UDL is more backed by research where differentiated instruction doesn't have maybe the flexibility of UDL. Because I noticed the term flexibility was like the common theme of this reading. So I would say like differentiated instruction doesn't have the flexibility or is not as backed by research, re- research and doesn't foster the whole brain as much as UDL. Judging it based on my experience, I think... UDL is more of a uh, professional research topic that not necessarily has been tested and proven with an everyday situation, whereas in, in the uh, in doing an instruction in your class, um, you have to be on your toes. Sometimes kids are having problems with a certain concept, but different in another subject area. So you're constantly on your toes trying to figure out concepts and ways to get at the students and help them versus just, you know, the the research part of it. I think there's some sort of breakdown between the theories and practice that we haven't been able to um, be concrete. I saw a really interesting analogy comparing the two because a lot of people have asked a similar question. And I thought this one analogy might be helpful. And this was a dinner party analogy. So the writer was saying that Differentiated instruction is more like you trying to create individualized meal plans for your guests. So if you have a guest who likes paleo, you would create a paleo dish. If you have a dinner guest who is a vegetarian, then you would create a vegetarian dish and so on. Whereas UDL is more like a buffet. So you would offer a lot of these different options that your guests would pick for themselves and they will pick the best ones that meet their requirements. And I thought that was an interesting way of comparing the two because there are a lot of overlaps, but they are also different in their starting points. And I think it helps address that question. That's a good analogy. And, you know, that actually cleared it up for me. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that, too. That's that's a really great way of looking at it. Great. And maybe Marina will let us know whether she agrees and whether she thinks that addresses the question. So with that said, let's talk about UDL. What did you think about the readings? Well, I actually liked the reading and I related to it a lot. You know, how they said how the curriculum 
is set, and if you were a student that didn't, you know, particularly fall along the line with the curriculum, you were labeled with a disability. There's something wrong with you, you know. And had they mentioned ramen in the article, and if he didn't have the specialized Rubik's cube, he would have been labeled as having a disability. But because you know the context was fixed for him, he's now brilliant genius. He had more resources to produce what he knows. So I related to that a lot, especially when, when I was in school. You know, I didn't quite fit in the curriculum. I didn't learn. You know, I went through my most of my school life thinking I'm stupid, to be honest with you. But, you know, as I got older, it was just I just understood things in different contexts than what was being taught to me. I went to school in the 90s as well, and we did have different tracks in high school. We had the the regions track, the non-regions track, and the, um, like, more of a conceptual uh, degree, whereas more life skills. I mean, students, no matter what class or what track you're in, they're still going to know their own labels. But I think now it's everyone's more sensitive to that, and it's not a, a disability more as it's just a challenge in a certain area. And I see this in music because... They come from me from all over the school. It's not, I have kids from the life skills class. I have kids that are, you know, number one in their class. But in my classroom, it's great because they're all on an even playing field because not everyone has the same ability, especially musically. Like, for example, I have one student who is pretty low functioning, but she's a killer violinist and she just found her thing. And I think it's a great place when you have a situation in an environment where there's nothing wrong with being different and learning differently. And the only thing as I find is it's challenging for the teacher because I don't know if we've been given all the tools that we need to see our students uh, successful. I think it's more trial and error. I mean, they give us professional development, but by the time we implement the, the professional development, they've moved on to another theory or another you know concept that they think would be better. But yeah, I think it's better that everybody's in, in one class and it makes you feel better. I know my own daughter um, was in special education for the first two years, but she was she was in an inclusion class, but she was still with everybody else. And she thrived from it because she was able to model other students in areas that she was weak and vice versa. She was able to you know do the same thing for others. So I think the reading was great of explaining that and uh, said some great points. So Kelly, on the outline, you have a question about something mentioned early in chapter four about learning sciences. What is the question? So the learning scientist asked, um, as if that said that learning is fairly predictable, and I'm kind of unclear how. I'm not sure if they mean by the di- it's predictable by the different regions of the brain that's being um, affected. I don't know what they mean by the predictability. So it helps to know that this reading comes from the same reading that we had a few weeks ago on the brain. I think the chapter was called The Variability of Learners. And so in that chapter, they talked about how learners are different and variable, but that they are different in ways that are predictable. And so it's not just random and chaotic, that although there are differences in people based on what we know about the brain, these differences are still predictable. And so that's what UDL is building on. Okay, so there could be um, predictability in the differences and how people prefer to learn or what works best for certain people? Yeah, and, I, and that's why I think, just going back to the analogy, the buffet works is because we know that these tools are effective 
And so instead of trying to treat every single individual as completely unique, we can kind of offer these as tools and or resources because we know what works and we know what is more effective. And that way we don't feel like we have to do everything from scratch. I know it also mentioned in the in the reading that the novice would kind of go through a trial and error. Do you think like students will go through trial and error and what tools work for them? Or do you think they kind of have a sense of what they know works for them? You're asking whether novice learners will know what works for them or not, or do they have to do like trial and error? Is that what you're asking? Yes. I feel like if students are given those options and tools and know how to use them, I think they'd be able to find what works for them. But again, it depends on if it's math, science, English, maybe they're great writers, but terrible mathematicians. So if if teachers give them the tools to say, listen, this is where you've been kind of having difficulties with, why don't you try it this way? I think students would be they would want to do it because they want to be successful. But if they're not given those tools, if they're not explained to them, they're, I don't know if they would do it on their own or not. I don't know if they would know what to do on their own. Because I at least know for me, when I was like first learning, like going to school, I did do kind of a trial and error. I would pay attention. Okay, this works for this person. Let me try it. Okay, that didn't really work for me. Let's see what this person who's getting A's is doing. Let me try it. Okay, this kind of works. I think that's part of what UDL is for, is that regardless of whether you're talking about a novice learner or a novice to a topic, the UDL guidelines recommend that teachers help students do more self-monitoring and be more self-aware so that they're not on their own doing trial and error, but also that they know what tools and resources are available for them to become more expert learners, I guess. Because mm-hmm. I think experts were once novices, no? Sure, yeah. So I hope that answers your question. And now let's talk about the UDL guidelines. In chapter four, it's divided into three tables. And I was wondering, what do you consider to be the most important? Well, I thought that was a hard question to answer because I feel they're all important. And just kind of picking one goes against the whole brain idea that we are trying to implement. So no, I should just... um just clarify, um, when I say what is the most important, I think you're right, they are all important. What, what I, I guess what I was getting at is that if you look at the entire list, so it's, I think in, in somewhere in the chapter they say that these are guidelines, so these are not rules. You don't have to do every single one of these. And so, I, so when I ask, like, what is the most important, um, it would be how would you prioritize it? Maybe it's a better way of phrasing the question. Like if you were... Um, if you had a if you had a lesson or unit, what would you start with? Just because it is very overwhelming to make sure you hit on every one of these. So, what would your priority be? So, if you since you put it that way, I would definitely start with engagement. You got to draw them in. You know, if you're not engaged and you don't like something, because they also mentioned that in page one hundred one, I believe. If you don't like it and you have a terrible mood towards what you're doing. It's just you're not going to get to the rest. It's just not happening. So definitely engagement to start off. That, I would prioritize that 100% and just provide the options, you know, so every student could pick what engages them and the options for self-regulation because it's important they regulate themselves. 
and they have that meta reflection towards their own learning. Based off the way you asked the question now, I think for me, for music, it would be representation because you would need, you know, right there it says the, uh, you know, understanding across languages and music is a language and you have to be able to decode it and, and know what it is. I mean, I don't know if all music teachers would agree with me, but I think this very close second would be the engagement. And I work on that a lot with my students, which is, you know, the self-assessment and reflection. They need to be able to go home and hear what they're playing and say, is this right? Is it not? What do I need to do? So the I, I think the representation for me wins out as number one, but engagement follows very close second. Kelly, you had an interesting question about flexibility and the limitations of that. Would you want to ask that question? Oh, flexibility is a common theme. And can flexibility really be flexible for all students? And are there limitations to this? And I know Candace also asked a question about, you know, low-budget schools. Mm-hmm. Can Is this really realistic to put into every environment? Especially when you, like I know my school district, they're on the low social economic list. And since we were on the topic of engagement, I have some kids, you know, students in class, no matter what you do, they're not going to be engaged because they have something else going on at home. Or like, you know, a lot of these kids didn't eat breakfast. They get dinner at their school sometimes. How do you go around that? You know, how flexible can you really be? That's an interesting question. And for me, it sounds like there are at least two parts of this. So in terms of the real world context of students who are facing issues at home that they have to address and whether UDL can overcome those issues. And then possibly there's a practical logistical side to using UDL and how restrictive that would be for the teacher. And I think I was wondering, Candice, do you want to address this first? When I wrote one of my questions about the, uh, the difference between Common Core instruction and UDL, it's interesting to hear the UDL because the another I'm not a, a math English. I don't do what they do, but they have modules that they have to follow down to the written word. They have to say exactly what they have to say to the kids. So if you have a kid that's, you know, for whatever they need, it more uh, has a question or doesn't have an understanding, and you can think of as an, a teacher another way around that but that's not in your curriculum. Is that being flexible? Can you be flexible? And I think it depends on where you're teaching, what the support system is from administration and, and the curriculum that's been adopted. Um, whereas some schools, like uh, the school district that my kids are in, that would be absolutely they are as flexible as they can be to get every student where they need to be. Whereas my students who are also coming from a, you know, a, a socioeconomic background that's not really great for some of them. Um, they're just pushing test scores for them. So it doesn't matter if they're learning, if they're not learning, they're not being flexible because they're not allowed to be flexible because they have to make sure this test that gets up to a certain point so they can keep their funding. So I think it depends on individual schools if you can be flexible or not. Yeah, it's interesting you said about the test scores because the schools that are low socioeconomic, that's all they really have to show, you know, to get the funding, like you said. And it's just tough because, you know, they're not really learning or they're not having that engagement. It's just to the test. They're very smart and crafty and, and they do understand all this. And I and my heart breaks for them because they know next town over, they're not doing this, you know, so why them? 
Well, I know in doing an independent study at Oceanside, they get to, you know, do lots more flexible stuff. They don't have to, you know, a lot of their parents opt out of the testing, you know, and they get to do more hands-on and they get to, you know, it does break my heart. One of the chapters end with something on UDL and Common Core. My own personal take is that UDL does not and should not conflict with Common Core because Common Core is just a framework, a set of guidelines and standards that you aim for, and UDL is how you get there. It's not an either or. It's not like either you do UDL or you do Common Core. They're not fighting against each other. Obviously, there are some schools that may be more restrictive and and more particular about how the standards are done, and it is a shame if those are very restrictive, but otherwise, UDL shouldn't be seen as something that you have to do in addition. It should be something that helps you get students to where they need to be with the Common Core. Well, that's a good thought, honestly, because it did mention also in this reading that how goals can be implemented in the standards with the Common Core how it's not so much focusing on a means, but just the way to get to the way to get to the goal without the means. As I was reading the chapter, my takeaway is that UDL emphasizes giving students multiple ways of accessing information, right? So not just giving them something to read, but maybe audio and video options. And it also recommends giving students multiple ways of demonstrating understanding. So letting them do a video instead of writing a paper. So while I fully agree with UDL and and rely it on my course design, so that's why you do forum, you do VoiceThread, um, the podcast is part of that as well. Uh, I sometimes I often struggle with striking a balance um, because how do you make sure, for example, how do you make sure that students know how to read and write an academic article? And so how do you think educators should strike that balance? Well. I do agree. Although UDL is great to implement, you can't ignore other modes of expression, such as the writing and the reading. Because I know, like me, if I don't got to write, just like how they mentioned the basin, you know, he had a difficult time spelling and communicating through written words. If I'm not required to do it, I'm going to totally not do it. But because I'm totally not required to do it, it's not, that skill is going to be lacking. I just I graduated with my BS in biology, and we have to write a lot of um, scientific research papers. So I struggled with that, and I had no. I think it comes down to motivation. Why do I have to write? I have to write because I, it's good to know. I have to write scientific papers. I think it goes back to that motivation, given that why, instead of like, well, I want you to just do this and this. But it's like if I can express myself this way, why do I have to do it this way? And just giving a reason why you got to do it this way, too, and why it's important. So my motivation to go to the writing center and to, to write correctly was I, I f- either fail, you know, or I do the writing. So I think the biggest thing is motivation. That's how you strike the balance. And just tell students, you know, it's great that you can all express yourself in these different ways, but, you know, you can't lack in the other area. But I, what I thought was a mini lesson on the subject area, or for example, on, on the academic articles. These are the important steps you need to take. You need to understand what the author's purpose, you have to know uh, what are the, the arguments and you know what you feel about what's the argument if you agree, disagree. Um, but that's only good for people that learn in that way. I'm not, I'm more of a visual learner. I'm not really 
um, I can read something and, and really understand it. I need to look at the whole picture. So that's why doing the mini lesson and then setting up stations of different types of way you learn. And, you know, some people like to work in groups. So maybe one of the stations would be, all right, get together with a bunch of people and, and bounce ideas off of each other. Or some people need to watch videos or play a game or whatever, you know, other they could think of and then come back and see if they've learned. Also, but also maybe giving, um, making kids do what they're not comfortable because they do need to learn this. So it's, it's, yes, we're supposed to support the way they're best learning, but you can't also let them struggle in the ways that they're not and not face it and try to gain knowledge on how to do it that way. They're not going to want to, but, <laughs> but it's important to push them to, to do that as well. It also goes against, you know, the real world. Sometimes you're going to, it's like tough cookie. You know, in the reality, you might have to do something, ask the view that's not optimal to the way you do it. So you have, I think it's also beneficial to be put, made uncomfortable and be like, hey, you're writing today. I know you're not the best writer, but. You're not going to get better unless you keep practicing at it. That's it. Yeah. I had a similar question, which is, uh, just like you said, can a case be made that you can go too far with the UDL, that students need to know how to adapt? Because when they're in the workplace, if things are presented to them as a text or in text-centric ways, which is kind of like the critique of the reading, that if you're working somewhere, they're not going to give you something in visual and text and audio format. They're going to ask you, you have to mm -hmm. read this thing. You have to read this report and analyze it. Um, and yeah. so if you provide too much flexibility in school, do you then not allow them to develop those skills? Whenever I ask myself these questions, I need to be careful because then I want to avoid making excuses for myself for not providing those options. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's for me, that's always the struggle. Your struggle for you is providing all the options, you mean? Yeah. Or kind of forcing students, for lack of better words? Yeah. So like for this class and for just higher education in general, it's a lot easier to find readings and chapters that focus on the topic. I do want to try to make more videos like the Samer model, the Bloom's Taxonomy, or you know, videos for other classes. It's a lot time-consuming on my part to do that, but that's not the reason. It's just that I need to prioritize and I do plan on adding more videos. Also, just more specifically about how I let students express, mm -hmm. I don't want to rely too much on written assignments. Limit them, yeah. So, for example, the hands-on assignment, I just change it so that you can do a video as well. And I think that's okay because I think for the hands-on, I don't need to read a paper. And in many ways, a paper might not even be the best way to show showcase that. But there are definitely assignments where I feel like it should be written. And also, I do think the written part is, is important because otherwise, there may only be one class or two classes where students are really asked to write something. I feel like writing is such an important skill that is often left out because, A, because people don't really want to teach writing or don't know how to teach writing, and also because for good intentions for you know to do UDL, they want students to be able to express themselves in different ways. But the result is that students often don't know how to write well. I think in higher education, I think you should have a lot more of the writing and reading and, and doing um, you know research. And it's not my favorite thing to do, but because 
my other one of my other degrees was pretty much all we did was write papers. I got a lot better at it, and therefore now I can help my students with them with uh, you know proofing and editing and explaining why things need to be done this way. And down the line, you're going to need to do this in high school and in, in college. And it's been a, it's it's a really scary thing that I'm reading these seniors or even college freshmen papers and they're. They're, they're not literate. They're just using text language. They don't understand to form sentences and, and you know, like a topic sentence. Um, but I mean, yes, it would be great to have more uh, in higher education, more ways to do a project. I mean, because you kind of do need that because when you're teaching, you can't just do writing. That doesn't, it's not going to be beneficial. Um, so it'd be nice to learn, you know, a few different ways to do a specific subject matter or this topic, you know, yes, there's reading and research on it, but you can also add a different element to it. But I think in the higher levels, you definitely need to do a lot of writing. If you know you're a weak writer, I know I'm a weak writer, I'm not the most articulate either, but I go to the writing center. That's great that you do that. Unfortunately, not enough students do. They're embarrassed to go and which shouldn't be. Yeah, that's what they're there for, you know. <laughs> but um, when it comes to UDL going too far, maybe, maybe it does. Maybe it's giving too many options. Maybe, you know, we're not setting them up for uh, success later on down the line. You know, the big thing now is college career ready. So are we preparing our students in college career ready by the methods we're using now? I don't know. I guess time will tell. That what you said about providing too many options, that makes me, that leads me to one question I have about the online course, which is providing too many options for expression. So like, for example, in the online class, you have voice thread and you can respond uh, by audio. And there's actually also a text option. And I haven't enabled that because what I usually find is that, from my view, it fractures the experience so that instead of having everyone talking and listening to each other, you suddenly have a piece of text in the middle of the conversation. Maybe people might prefer writing over speaking, but I think people prefer listening over reading. And so yeah. a lot of the people who write their responses get neglected. And I also feel like it creates a strangely ununified experience just for the online class, I was wondering, since you are taking the online class, what thoughts you have? Well, it's interesting you say that because when I was reading this reading in chapter six, it talks about how the quiet student who doesn't typically take leadership roles might be more inclined to in a blog. But then again, this person who's so quiet should learn to have a voice in real life situations. So if you allow them to do it in a blog, it is kind of like a cop out. You know, I do think if you let everyone type, everyone would type. I think, yeah, it would be kind of a cop-out if you gave them the texting, you know, the written port. Like, if you have the quiet kids in class and you just kind of want them to have a voice and you just, okay, well, you can just write a little blog. You're really setting them up to, like, be not heard the rest of their life. Because they're not always, like I was talking about, they're not always going to be able to be able to express themselves that way in the real world. 
I, uh, I think it's really important to get people out of their comfort zone. For me, speaking, you know, on the voice threads and even just this, this is really out of my comfort zone. I'm more quiet, introverted. I, you know, I have opinions, but, you know, I just, I'm more afraid of what if it's a stupid answer? Or what if, you know, it's not exactly what I was supposed to be doing? So you kind of revert back and, you know, you listen, you see what's going on. But now that we're not in a classroom setting, you know, I, I'm forced to speak. I'm forced to make a, you know, a threat, a voice thread. Whereas in some of my other classes, I just got away with saying my one thing for the class, put my hand back down and just listen to what was going on. I mean, it wasn't that I wasn't learning. I just don't want to talk. I want to pivot to something else in the reading, chapter six, on page 134. They write that goals must be written in ways that challenge all learners appropriately. How would you do that in your class? Well, just like in the reading, I think it requires a balance between being undercutting and overcutting students. So I would do this by having constant assessment of the learners where everyone is engaged cognitively. I would assess them by talking to them and observing them and then tweak the goals according to how they're doing. I would pay attention to what's motivating and what strategies they're using that's helping them. And I would make sure the goals are very clear and we're all on the same page. And I would just provide them, you know, with the buffet of resources they would need to accomplish the goal. For me, this is kind of a strong suit because uh, at any given time, I can have 120 students with instruments sitting in front of me waiting for assessment. So you get bad, better at it. You get a bag of tricks of what works for certain situations and for certain types of students. And you just keep using them and it gets easier. Um, but a bonus for me is I also, not only do I get them in a large group setting, that I also get them sometimes one-on-one -on -one or, you know, four or five kids at one time and where I could really sit down, learn their personalities, get with, you know, get them comfortable. And from there, I can assess just from a few things. I'm like, oh, okay, I know what your problem is. It's a posture issue. All right, fix this. Oh, it's a reading issue. But in my own head, I have goals for all my kids and I share it with the students and i and they agree most of the time, uh, but you always kind of have to guide them back on because uh, they want they want the easy way out. They don't want to be challenged. They just want to come in my class and not have to think for 46 minutes. But, <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, not in this class, not today. So, you know, it's a hard skill to adapt right away. It takes years of practice to understand each learn, you know, learner and their, what works for them. And sometimes you get a kid who's completely different than you've ever taught before, which I'm actually finding, this is my, I'm teaching 16 years. So this is the first year that I've had, I've had difficulty. Now, I don't know if it's because of Common Core. I don't know if it's home situations. I don't know if it's technology. I don't really know why, but they're very, I, I have a hard time every day trying to fix and do goals and assess. So, um, it's like learning all over again for me. So I can understand their frustrations and their struggles because I'm having struggles just with them. They might make a really interesting action research project to figure out why that is for this group of students. Yeah. Now, both of you are in K-12, right? Yes. Oh, I am. Oh, yeah. So maybe you can help me with this then because this is about the next question. Given how much work it takes to properly make a lesson or you're going to comply with UDL principles, do you think educators will be less likely to make changes to the curriculum? So I'm in higher ed, so I'm thinking more along those lines. So in K-12, I assume that there would be topics that would always be taught, like 
addition, subtraction, geometry, American Revolution. Mm -hmm. I think these are topics that are standard. But for me, and especially in my field of educational technology, I need to keep the material fresh. So I feel like it would be a lot harder or I would be a lot more reluctant to adjust my teaching material if for every reading I need to provide different supports. And uh, so it's not an excuse. I, I do try to provide videos, as I said earlier, when it's appropriate. And I know I can do a lot better, but sometimes I'm limited by what I can provide for practical reasons. So what I don't want to happen is that because I've set up all these different options and that I just stopped changing my curriculum because of that. And I was wondering, if you, what do you think of that? In terms of keeping it fresh, yes, it would be hard to. I, I'm just going to say for me, like I try to keep everyone engaged. So I pay attention to what like they're into. So my school is heavily Latina and they all like to do something called nay-naying. It's like a dance. So when, <laughs> and I let them put like their music on and nay-nay, only like, you know, only when they've completed a task. And I'm very entertaining as a teacher. So I'm like, okay, you did this right. You may nay-nay. So it kind of keeps everyone engaged and like they want to, you know, do the standard way of like how you said doing it because they want to get up and nay-nay or make it funny. I'm not changing anything. I'm not providing different supports of anything. I'm just being funny and entertaining with that and engaging everyone. I think you really need to be creative and innovative to keep your classes, uh, your lessons from being dull and not motivating. Um, I feel like a teacher is a lifelong student, so we're still learning and, and the game keeps getting changed on us. So, you know, we have to stay with it and get, you know, the new techniques. And, you know, there's so many great ways now than there was when I first started teaching. Like now we have all these websites, all these blogs, all these sites that you can go to. And this is what this person's doing and it's working and this one's not working. So it's always networking and always talking and always asking questions. I think that's the best way to keep things fresh. Once you lose, once you lose that and, and you don't have any way to relate to the students, you're done for. I see that with the teachers, you know, they're, they're, they're in there 40 years, 35 years, 40 years. And, you know, you see them going downhill, which previously that they were, they were the best teachers. They were the ones all the students loved, but they just stopped learning. They stopped networking and it causes a problem. And it goes back to relating with the students. Also, like you said, you got to pay attention to the, the culture or like the climate. Yeah, I guess I feel kind of like what we were talking about this in this past week about uh, kind of the fear of change in some teachers. This can relate to technology. This can re be related to a particular teaching philosophy. Um, you know, we touch on a few. And if you have a structure in place, then it's a lot harder to change after that because you have to redo a lot of things. In your responses, some of you said that they were fe kind of fearing change. I think that's part of that, but also fe feel like having too much of a structure could make people baked into their, their methods. And I feel like UDL can be like that sometimes. You know, if for every reading I created video and audio and whatever, every time I'm going to switch off, swap out a reading, I'm going to be thinking, okay, I'm going to have to redo all this stuff again. And <laughs> would that make me less likely to want to do that? hope that's not the case but sometimes I do worry about that well I, I, th I think it's a valid worry you know teachers have to do so much already and then like you said if you have to change everything around you know you're a person too <laughs> you know it takes time to you know you can do stuff like implement the videos and 
you know, but when you have to do a whole 360, and I worry about that also, I have the same concerns as you. So Kelly, you had one final question relating UDL to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Do you want to ask that? You know, you know how we talked about UDL and, you know, they want to have an optimal environment and having all these resources and getting kids engaged and monitor their own learning. But if some kids, you know, if they're worried about other things at home, like, you know, what they're going to eat, or maybe they have a family dysfunction, how do you work around that and get them to be engaged in their learning and have this metacognition? I live this every day. Um, I, it's, I mean, just a side story really quick. Um, we have a new t- teacher in our department and the the day or two before a break, the kids are absolutely insane. They're just well, not behaved well. They're constantly getting into fights. And she's like, I just don't understand what is going on. I said, it's because many of these students are going home. They know they're not going to eat for the week because their only meals were here at school. They know nobody's home for them. Um, and particularly over the, the Christmas break, they, came, they didn't come in the day after the break because they didn't want to hear how other students got so many things for Christmas and they got nothing. So I think it, it, it affects them a lot. I think a lot of them just fall into that whole routine. Well, you know what? I, nothing's going for me. Why do I bother with school? School's not getting me fed. School's not getting me what I need. So why should I bother? But as a teacher, you somehow have to figure out how to get to them no, it doesn't have to be this way your whole life. You just kind of need to take them under their, you know, take them under your wing. I, I have, I have two kids at home, but I have about a thousand other kids that always are with me. You know, they come to me, at, they come to me at lunch, they come to me after school, before school, and I let them in. They feel safe and comfortable, and you know what? They learn more because they're like, you know, I can do this. Yeah. There's a future for me. This, I can, I, you know, it will help. But if you don't have that support system at school. Um, yeah. I think you're setting up for failure for a lot, um, not just school-wise, it's just social-emotional. And it's how, it's how do you address that and then do the, expect them to do UDL and explore their options. Exactly. Be meta-reflective. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, they, they instituted a program in my school um, about five years ago now. Um, we do meditation. So every morning, right after homeroom, we do eight minutes of meditative breathing. A student will come on the announcements or the lights are off. I put on like soothing meditation music in the background. We all sit in the chairs. They go through how to breathe and what different ways to breathe. The kids actually use it. I did a, I did a, a project a couple of years ago on uh, do you like the breathing? Have you used the breathing? And it was overwhelmingly yes. <laughs> they really loved it. They won't tell the, their yeah. friends that. But it does help. So, I mean, I know some schools are starting to try to help with things like the social emotional learning, the breathing, the breakfast and, you know, Mm -hmm. programs. So it it is a big deal, I think, that they don't feel safe in their own environment. So they're not going to learn. There's no way. Candace, I I think you should take the professor's advice and do a research paper. (laughs) 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 It would be interesting. Well, we do have a research class, so. Down the line. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, mean, I think UDL, the idea of UDL, though, is that you are where traditionally the burden of trying to understand and overcoming these barriers are on the students. The idea of UDL is to shift it more to the teachers so that the teachers, teachers provide the different options. So hopefully that will help um, reduce the anxiety and the um, 
at least any any anxiety that comes with the learning part of it in terms of anything at home that's all, obviously that's going to affect how they perform in class as well that's i guess that's it's harder for the teacher to control but it's good to know like i think in the um in the podcast with Jonathan and Jennifer Jonathan had mentioned that he has homeroom and he would understand he would like know the the students background do they sleep knowing that if they didn't sleep well they're not going to be able to learn because sleep is important to the brain and all that stuff so mm-hmm. yeah it would impact it and again hopefully UDL is to help reduce any barriers that you can as a as a teacher UDL kind of reminded me of like a Montessori school when I was reading it in a way because Montessori, Montessori schools foster a lot of discovery learning and like independence and metacognition well Thank you for coming here and talking about UDL with us. I think we, I feel like we critiqued it a lot more than we embraced it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um maybe that's just a reflection of my own personal struggle even though I don't disagree with it and I like it and I use it a lot. I, I think it's sometimes it's hard to strike that balance. It's something that that I'm still trying to figure out. I think the critiquing comes from just us thinking about it rather than bashing it. Yes. For for me it is. It's the nature of what yeah. we do every day. We yes. critique every day. <laughs> right, yeah. And you don't want to embrace anything blindly. So, Well, I guess that wraps up this episode of The Conversation. We're off next week due to spring break, but when we come back, we'll be talking about standards and needs. Thank you, Kelly and Candice, for coming on this episode. Great. Thank Have you a great so much. Have spring break, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you. Bye.